It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate. On July 1st, the Chambersburg Area School District will welcome a new superintendent, Dion Betts. Dr. Betts comes to the area after serving as an assistant superintendent for the School District of Philadelphia for six years. He's also an author, having written five books on children and autism spectrum disorders. And he joins us today on the Progress Pod. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Betts. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to uh, have you on the program. So you moved here from Philadelphia. And what were some of your initial impressions of Franklin County in the area? So actually, I haven't moved. I've lived in Lancaster County for 30 years. Oh, okay. And I went to graduate school in Philadelphia and uh, raised a family in Lancaster. I have five kids, and two of of whom are still in high school. Okay. But uh, I am settling on a house uh, uh, tomorrow, in fact, in Chambersburg, and uh, plan to make uh, my my home here. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. What got you interested in uh, the education field? Well, my parents were very much interested and involved in social justice movement in New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, I started my first, I uh, lived in New York uh, for the first eight years of, of my life. And during the time, uh, my parents were very much into the uh, civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would bring uh, the children, us, to different events, marches, and things like that. Mm. Uh, and they're still very much, oh, well, my mother's still very much uh, a part of that in upstate New York. Okay. Um, so we are raised with a social justice. And I was raised to uh, want to have a job in which I can do some good, help people, do something good for, for everybody, mm-hmm. and not just do something for my own um, benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with that, um, I started out, um, I got a, uh, obtained a master's degree in special education, education in Albany, New York. Uh, I came to Philadelphia for additional graduate work. And I ended up working for the school district of Philadelphia in North Philadelphia okay. at a school called the Bilingual Middle Magnet School at 8th and Lehigh. And uh, that school has since changed names and locations. Mm-hmm. Um, that experience really g- gave me the value of uh, public education. Um, I uh, returned. Uh, I left the city after teaching there. And then I returned as an assistant superintendent about six years ago. Okay. And uh, I had a swath of the city of about 25,000 kids, about 20 schools uh, that I was responsible for as assistant superintendent. Mm-hmm. And I experienced a great many uh, challenges, but also a great many uh, wonderful things that happened mm-hmm. with the teachers and children and families there. My area of the city had the largest immigrant population of any part of the city, and it was really excited. We had to serve uh, uh, children from... Uh, families with backgrounds from 60 to 70 different countries and languages. Wow. And But it was, a, it was a challenge, but it was really exciting and actually a lot of fun a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your leadership style? Um, well, I, uh, it, it really depends. Um, overall, I like to envision big things for families and children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very much interested in increasing the quality of the educational product, and that is children feeling challenged by the schoolwork and given opportunities to work on in which they have the cognitive load in the classroom. 
so that when they leave school, they leave prepared for challenging situations, whether it be jobs, communicating at the workplace, or going to college, uh, where they're doing additional academic work. And I feel that across the country that uh, children aren't challenged enough and that teachers end up doing all the work. And it really is the opposite. The children should be doing the work and the cognitive work, not worksheets and just writing and filling out things and packets for work's sake, but thinking, speaking, listening, and writing across the curriculum so they're really prepared for the real world and really can contribute and learn how to work together in groups and things like that. So that's the big big overall. So that's an overall, I, I suppose, vision. Right. And uh, there's many ways to, to accomplish that. Fortunately, in Chambersburg, um, people before me hired very talented people, and uh, they're very interested in uh, the academics of the district. I spent the last uh, 12 weeks interviewing people, children, families, teachers, administrators, and there was two resounding things they asked me to work on because I asked them, what would you like from your new superintendent? And there were two things. One is better communication among adults. And the second thing is a heightened, uh, heightened focus on academics and rigor. And that's what I'll do. And uh, engaging teachers in that process and administrators and children is really the way to go to engage, getting people excited about um, tweaking, making changes where we can have more rigor and opportunities for children. Mm -hmm. What is your feeling about homework? Um, I believe homework's valued. Um, I don't think too much homework is of great value. Uh, The research shows that homework and practice is very beneficial to uh, uh, something called memory consolidation. And that really, what that is, is learning. Uh, When you learn something, you're really committing something to memory something in your brain that sticks. Mm-hmm. And by with practice opportunities, and uh, that helps develop that. Mm-hmm. Well, in talking to the community, you say you're getting two pieces of feedback mm-hmm. uh, regarding you know, their education. When you talk about communication between adults, can you be more specific? What do they want you to address specifically? So I'm just reporting out what I've heard from many, many people, and that is we need to have more discussions about children and less about what adults need and um, whatever that might might look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting rid of any bickering, uh, adult conflict, and start talking more about what do the children need? How can we serve them better? How can we educate them better? How can we engage them more? How do we make all kids of all different backgrounds uh, feel more welcome in the schools and feel a part of the learning community? Mm-hmm. About five years ago, we had 400 children with um, different languages than English in the school district as their primary language. Now that's expanded up to over 800. So we really need to be filling those needs and not saying uh, it's a huge challenge and how do we do this, but finding out ways to do it. Saying, okay, here's a challenge. It's a great challenge. It's a, it's a worthwhile challenge. Let's work together on working it out, that sort of thing. Is the uh, the language barrier issue can be a costly budget issue? Uh, how how will you address that here in Chambersburg? So actually, it's not it's not as costly as it could be. We do need uh, EL teachers uh, to help, 
but really the techniques and strategies that we use for children with primary other languages, other primary languages than English, really work with all students. Mm -hmm. uh, things like visual representation, explaining vocabulary, learning difficult words, different vocabulary, expressing oneself, speaking uh, and writing. These are strategies that all children can benefit from. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things we do as we increase uh, rigor and challenges for children and so on is uh, providing opportunities for all, all children and using visual strategies, encouraging kids to read, write, speak, um, you know, across the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So it's good for all kids. And all teachers uh, w need to, and, and many of them have been using such strategies, our most successful teachers already use differentiated approaches like that to reach every child. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be super expensive and doesn't have to be super challenging. It actually is really a common sense approach to um, um, educating children. What are some of the unique challenges that our school district is facing? Um, actually, I have to say there, that we really don't have any really unique challenges, to be honest with you. All uh, most school districts, uh, especially districts of this size with sim similar dem demographics, we have a uh, small city population. We also have like a farming, agrarian mm -hmm. community. Um, we have an industrial hubs, as you, as you well know. And this is very common. What is slightly uncommon is that we have the several different types of um, areas that we're serving. So we have a small city, we have the uh, agricultural, we have the industrial. Many districts might have one of those. Like for Philadelphia, it would be more the urban setting. Uh, if you hit, if you go more west of here, it's more agricultural sort of. Right. So that would be that would be the differential. But every district, re regarding whatever population or area they serve, uh, have successful ways of serving those children and families. We have the fortune of uh, being able to uh, serve all of those children mm -hmm. and try different approaches depending on the child. Mm -hmm. What's nice about it is it gets us away from teaching to the whole class as opposed to teaching to the child. When I went to school in the 70s, um, teachers taught, and if the kids didn't get it, it was the child's fault. And we still believe that children are responsible for their learning. There's no question about it. But if we're going to reach all children, we have to say, well, if kids are gifted or talented, we have to reach them and provide uh, compelling, rigorous experiences for them so they're not bored and they're challenged and they learn something. Right. For kids who are not picking up things right away, we also have to provide them with additional support so that they understand. So the idea of serving many different um, people of different backgrounds it forces us to look at children individually. Sure. So it's a very positive thing. What? Where are you on classroom size? What is an ideal classroom size? Well, according to the research, there's not a specific. Um, there's no re one research article that says a specific size mm -hmm. is best. But it, it, there's no question that having smaller numbers of students for individualization and, and things like that, there's certainly an advantage to that. Yeah. But the research is very strong on a strong teacher trumps the size of a class. Okay. So it comes down to the teacher having yeah. that 
energy, that authority, mm -hmm. and that can make the difference. Yeah, and the teacher says, okay, uh, they're able to pull small groups and say, okay, these kids need a certain approach or intervention. These other kids might need some uh, expansion, some uh, higher order thinking questions to expand their their thinking, you know, things like that. So our best teachers, and we have a lot of great teachers, will differentiate and address all the children's needs and not simply just lecture like what we had, or at least what I had right. growing up. What are some of the changes you're looking to make? So uh, first, I think first and foremost is getting teachers together where they can collaborate and talk about big ideas. Uh, the best learning opportunity for adults in teaching, in my view, and research shows this, is getting teachers together to learn from each other, to practice together, to plan together, to teach together, to watch each other's practice together, and learn from each other. Mm -hmm. I learn best from a group of colleagues. We're going to get principals together in something called cohorts in professional learning communities so they can learn together and then uh, drill that down to teachers so they have that opportunity too. With that, um, there's really no stopping us, getting people together. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, greatest minds of all time worked with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, geniuses didn't, aren't genius alone. Oftentimes it's a group of people working together. Mm -hmm. uh, Deming helped uh, recreate Japan after World War II with a concept called total quality management. And one of the key tenets of that is getting groups together to problem solve, to plan, do, study, and act in a recursive process of working together, trying something out, saying, did that work or not? Let's try something different. We're doing the exact same thing in schools. So almost like each teacher becomes kind of a learning laboratory, you know, into their classroom. Uh, well, actually better that uh, teachers working together is that is that laboratory. It's like a thinking space where... They are each other's thought partners. Mm -hmm. Does the current curriculum allow for them to be creative in how they teach? Yes, it does. Um, we are redeveloping and redesigning the published uh, curriculum materials to provide additional resources. Mm -hmm. But I believe in two things with um, running schools and in classrooms is you definitely need procedures and processes and the basics of good instruction and good practice. Mm -hmm. But you also need innovation and change and trying different things out. Mm -hmm. You can't get better unless you try different things. I told new teachers recently, I said, and they were surprised to hear me say this, I said, I welcome you to try new things. I welcome that you make mistakes. I welcomed, and that by making mistakes, it shows you're trying new things. Mm -hmm. And you, we want to try things that are predictively uh, going to work for students. So not just innovation for innovation's sake, but predictively good for children. And I feel the same way for principals. Uh, everyone in the district, to get better, you have to try new things, sure. no matter what area you are, whether it's buildings and grounds, uh, transportation, food service. Um, that's the only way to get better. So how will you go about kind of, you know, measuring the success or failure of these, uh, these new efforts? Uh, well, first is qualitative. So these cohorts and these meetings where principals are going to get together and observe each other's schools and provide feedback to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at the, the quality of discussion where people begin to feel really open about 
exposing their, uh, when you're in a professional learning community, you're really exposing yourself. When you're bringing in colleagues to show off your school, you're really, it's a really, really vulnerable place sure. because no one likes to be criticized. But we want to create a space where people become just open to providing crit- constructive feedback and receiving constructive feedback in a right. way they feel like it's a trusted... Inv- uh, well, there's criticism and then there's critique. I yes. mean, they're different things. Oh, absolutely. So we want to create that space where people can trust each other and uh, they don't have to feel defensive. And then if I'm there, if someone makes a mistake or there's some constructive feedback, it doesn't mean that anybody did anything wrong. It actually is a healthy thing. So will some of the measurement be based on students' grades or? Yeah, so uh, not so much grades, but, uh, but I'm establishing four main uh, goals for the district, which I'm going to work on with the board. The, the main goal is the main academic goal, uh, which is a sampling of what's happening in the whole district. Mm-hmm. And that is at grades 3, 8, and 11, that children at the end of those grades are at grade level in uh, reading and numeracy or mathematics. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is sort of a random sample of how the the health of the district academically. So that's one of the big goals. Mm -hmm. And so there's metrics around that. So there are statewide assessments, but we also have formative assessments or benchmarks where we can check on how kids are doing throughout the year, a couple times a year. There's another goal, and that's career and college readiness and uh, some metrics around increasing the graduation rate increasing attendance, reducing out-of-school suspensions, looking at those metrics as uh, sort of looking at the climate and culture of the school. Again, just a sampling of what's going on. Mm -hmm. A third goal would be professional development, that we're building and having the best talent uh, that we possibly can have by obtaining the best, but also with a lot of professional development, with uh, observation and feedback, professional learning communities, and things like that. And we can have metrics around that. And then the fourth goal is around financial stability and good uh, fiscal stewardship where we're spending taxpayer money in a very responsible, intentional way. All right. Well, you led us there. Let's talk about the budgets. Uh, What is the fiscal health of the school district? I believe we have a very strong uh, fiscal health of the school district. And I also believe that the community as a whole uh, is strong fiscally, so it's a representation of the uh, larger community. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly there's challenges. There's no question about it. But on the whole, the district is very strong uh, fiscally. So the school district is financially healthy? and Yes, I believe it is, yes. Well, that's great to hear because mm-hmm. it was a couple years ago when they were looking at serious budget cuts. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad to hear that that's been resolved. Well, it's not totally resolved. What, we, what I want to do is uh, be more efficient with the use of staff. So, for example, looking at job roles to see that people have, well, frankly, enough to do and that we're not top-heavy in administration, so we're looking at that. Just one small example, an administrator is resigning uh, to go to another district. Mm -hmm. We're not replacing that position at a savings of about $135,000, and we're taking that person's job responsibilities and divvying them out, that sort of thing. Another thing we've done is looked at the high school uh, course schedule to make sure there's a minimum number of students in classrooms so that we're utilizing teachers very, very well. So, for example, uh, 
we should not hold the class when there's only four children in the class. Mm-hmm. Or where a teacher might have uh, four class periods during the day and the rest of the day they don't have a, uh, courses or something like that. Mm-hmm. So utilizing people really, really well in all areas, instructional, food service, transportation. So creating those efficiencies. All right, you're trimming the fat. Yes. Are you getting some pushback on some ideas like that, for instance? Yeah, naturally you're going to get pushback. And like, where is this guy coming from? Are we going to some crazy system where everybody has to reapply for their jobs? You know, in the industry, they have schemes like that. So nothing like that. Um, I say to people, I'm not coming in as a wrecking ball. We're simply tweaking things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to fire people, get rid of people. We're here to optimize what we have. Did you sense kind of a nervousness when you talk to people because you're new and you bring new ideas? Yes, absolutely. But with that, I've been talking to people. Now, I have some ideas, and they might seem a little crazy, but I encourage everyone to innovate and think outside the box to mm-hmm. for fisc- good fiscal management, but also to improve what we do with children. Sure, sure. Where, where does our school district rank in, in the state? We actually, for the resources we have, we, do, we don't do as well as we should. So there's about 500 school districts. Uh-huh. We're about 250 in terms of achievement. Okay, and, mid-pack. Excuse me? <laughs> mid-pack. <laughs> yeah, and given the resources, which we have more than most school districts, we should be doing better uh, achievement-wise. Interesting. And we can do that. I think we focus. We do the things I'm talking about. I, I really believe we've got what it takes to really go to the next level. What – and. You're being measured as well. Yes. Uh, what are the expectations that you have for yourself? So what I did, these four goals, the district goals that I'm going to be working on with the board, those are going to be the exact same professional goals that I have. And are, that would be part of my contract and, frankly, any raises or what have you and my performance appraisal at the end of the year. So all the district goals are actually my exact goals. Interesting. Now, have you given yourself time to complete these goals? or been working on them for several weeks. And I'm engaging administration, principals. Um, in fact, I put out a survey to all the employees uh, with the draft goals asking for feedback, and I got a lot of it. I bet and it was you excellent. Um, so we were, we're having a leadership retreat with uh, all our administrators at the end of June. And we're going to be finalizing goals and strategies, how to get to the, the reach our goals and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then in July, a meeting with the board, we're going to have our own retreat where we're going to finalize the goals for me and then administration as well. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Where are you in emphasis on college versus vocational training? I think it's a real mistake to say that every child must go to college or to encourage every single child to go to college. I think that's a real mistake. There's you know, such if, a, I, if I could interrupt, I'm sorry to be rude and interrupt. There, there is, I agree, but there's this societal mandate that says if that resume does not say at the bottom of it, you know, BA, that job's not going to happen for you. Well, it's, it, the things are changing. Okay. So like, uh, well, like Google, they're looking for micro certifications. So, so my, my son did get a bachelor's degree in computers from Kutztown. He graduated a year ago. And I said, no, why don't you get your master's and your doctorate? Because I'm probably overeducated. And he said, Dad, you know, they don't want that. They want micro certifications. So his employer is paying him to get these certifications in um, 
networking, different things. Yeah, and they find that of value more than any college degree. Yeah, because learning about Shakespeare, I don't know that that's going to help you get a job at Google. Yeah, I mean, liberal arts is certainly important to have a have a contextual view of the world mm-hmm. and where we came from and social justice topics and things like that. But you don't have to go to college to learn. Right. It's a mistake, actually. Um, it's a mistake to think that you need a school or a teacher to learn. People can learn without a teacher. The people can learn without a school. People can learn without a college. Mm-hmm. So we do have to get away a little bit. And I know this is probably sacrilegious for a person in my position, but it's absolutely true. So I was at the most wonderful event uh, the other night. I was at JLG Industries. Sure. Um, the high school staff and uh, worked out a program with JLG in which kids interned there for half of their uh, school day at JLG. And they had a ceremony the other night where kids were surprised to find out that they successfully completed the internship, got credits for high school, but they were all offered full-time jobs at JLG. Boom. There you Bam. go. And JLG will pay for furthering their education if they want to go to college or, vo- or vocational school or something like that. Yeah. So you don't need to go to college to be super, super successful. Right. And how, you know, in the classroom, how do you kind of figure out which kids you want to push to college or which kids? I mean, how, how did, how's that handled? I think it's a mistake to track kids. I really do. Okay. So I'll tell you a personal story. When I was in seventh grade, I failed a music test. I was bored to tears. Sure. And by the way, I love music. I'm a musician. Uh, I love music, but give me music theory or music vocabulary. Yeah. Mentally, I check out. <laughs> so my guidance counselor told me I was not college material. Oh. Yeah. So, um, and I thought nothing of it. I thought, okay, well, I'm not college material. I told my mother when I got home, and she went into the school, and she said to the guidance counselor, you're going to put him in college prep classes. And she, he said, well, he can't do them. And she said, well, I'll take responsibility, but you're putting him in college prep classes. Mom. So after that, my dad sat down with me, helped me with my homework and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, I went to, got my bachelor's degree, uh, two master's degree, and my doctorate, and I've come to enjoy school because I engage with something I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, that's the key. Yeah, that is definitely the key. But um, but I think it's a it's a mistake to track kids. I really do because mm-hmm. we are we don't know what our kids can do. Mm-hmm. And when we say to children, let's increase the rigor, let's give them things we think they can't do. Let's like in kindergarten. Um, there's a running joke, or I don't know if it's a joke, joke or a rumor or what in the district right now that I've banned crayons. I did a few walkthroughs of some schools, and I just made some comments to teachers and principals. I said uh, I'd seen some coloring using crayons in, in this third grade in the bulletin board, and uh, there, was a, uh, there was a colored in green, and there was one sentence. And I said to the principal, I said, this is actually this was, this was third grade. I said to the principal, do you think third graders can write more than one sentence? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, so when we ask kids to do things, we should put away the crayons? That is like a, being able to hold a crayon as a kindergarten skill. Right. And let's work on third grade skills. Let's push kids beyond. I've talked to principals about kindergartners writing not sentences. Have them write paragraphs. Do argumentative writing. Oh, yeah. Some kids might not be ready, but some kids might, especially 
the ones who might, um, they might be more advanced. We have no idea what our kids can accomplish. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you talk to any, which I never have, any president of the United States, uh, past or present, I'm certain they would all tell you that they never expect they could be president of the United States. Sure, sure. Well, I'm going to go ahead and agree with the ban on crayons. Uh, I think they're the worst art materials ever made. Well, I... I, Speaking as an artist... (laughs) So you can go ahead and ban them, and I support you. My issue, my, I mean, the other thing is, why crayon? Why not like sharp paint or colored pencils yeah, or yeah. A different, any, any art material? Ma- maybe a different media. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what the, and this is the whole world, what the obsession is with crayons. They're, they're their worst. They should be melted down. Yes. So you're an author. Yes. Uh, you've written extensively about Asperger's and autism. Mm. Tell us more about that. And, and Talk about some of your books and what pushed you to want to write about it. So I have five children. My first child was born in 1994. Uh, when he was about three or four, we, re- we realized he was not developing as, as typical children develop. And in fact, I didn't notice it. I th- we were, me and my uh, wife at the time, were in denial. And uh, But finally, we said, all right, we'll get him tested. And uh, at the time, there was a diagnosis called Asperger's syndrome, which we didn't know anything about. And the district we were living in, we uh, when we were registering for kindergarten for him, we said he has a diagnosis with Asperger's, and everybody was like, "What's that?" Mm-hmm. And we thought, "Okay, this is really bad." Uh, he's very intellectually, he's fine, he's a smart kid, but just self care and just, um, you know, he would be in a, he wouldn't sit down in his desk for kindergarten; he'd lay on the floor. Okay. And he became a management issue. Right. And so we thought maybe discipline might help, you know, like one, two, three magic. or, right. But that didn't help. He just was not prepared, and sounds really set him off, mm-hmm. um, things like that. So uh, w- with that district, we thought we felt like a losing battle. So we were just calling around, and I, I remember we called the Mannheim Township School District, and uh, my... Uh, wife at the time said, called, and the secretary said, uh, yeah, we, we have uh, kids with Asperger's here. And we felt if the secretary knew about Asperger's, then probably yeah. a lot of other people did. So we, we basically bought a house for my son. We moved. And um, um, so that was very helpful. Um, I was a special education director for our time. And I work with autism experts, and just in talking with one expert in particular, a Dr. Nancy Patrick in Harrisburg, uh, we thought about writing a book about parents' experiences and solutions they had that practically made sense for them, for their children with Asperger's Mm -hmm. and uh, autism. And so we just interviewed parents. We put together a book, and uh, so that started up that process. And then I branched off. I worked with an occupational therapist. In writing a book, and then my wife at the time, who was very much into yoga, we did uh, a book on uh, yoga for kids with autism spectrum disorders. Interesting. That was the first of its kind. Personally, I don't do yoga. Uh, I'm bored by it, but uh, we tried it out with our son, and we talked to others, and so that was uh, uh, our most interesting book, I think. All right. So, um, it, what what is the connection there between children with autism and yoga? Uh, well, it's the calming effect of the uh, mind and body and physicalness, mm-hmm. uh, the breathing techniques and things like that. Mm-hmm. And interesting, when I was working, when I go to schools now, when I was in Philadelphia, 
I would go into a school and uh, there might be a class with uh, for aut- children with autism, and uh, a teacher will come up to me and they'll say, I have your book. We do yoga on uh, Wednesday mornings oh, or great. something. That's and I great. saw it in action. I was like, wow. So it's really a thrill that to see that. must have been rewarding. It was amazing. It just felt really good. Yeah. It was great to see that. That brings up the issues of mental health. And, you know, society's awareness is growing, mm-hmm. maybe not at the pace everyone wants. Mm-hmm. How, as superintendent, are you going to help address, you know, mental health issues? Because, you know, you know this from experience, teachers end up being social workers. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just a part of the job, but they're not necessarily trained to do it. Yeah, you're both on everything you just said, you're correct. That um, we have to meet children where they are. And the world has changed over yeah. the last 60 years. And the population we serve have changed. And families are different now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they look different. And there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, broken families. Yeah. And uh, we are now doing a better job diagnosing uh, where it used to be a child with a, a mental health issue would be sent someplace. Right. We're now not sending them places, fortunately. And um, so what that means is that our teachers and principals and support are helping children in the classroom because we can't just say you're getting suspended or sending out in the hallway. We have to address these needs. So, yes, it is a, it is a challenge. And you're exactly right. Training is needed and support people are needed. So we have a couple social workers who assist. We have school psychologists. Um, we have something called um, MTSS, which is a way of looking at children's behavioral, mental health, and other needs and uh, helping teachers help those children in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Certainly, children will need, those children will need counseling supports and mental health supports outside the classroom, but not all the time. So how do we create welcoming environments where children can feel safe and secure and not feel a need to display some maladaptive type of behaviors? Right. There's something called trauma-informed care or teaching, where we, there's an understanding that children are coming from backgrounds where they feel trauma. There, there is some PTSD. And children have some triggers with, um, by just how they're dealt with by ch- other children and adults that we can uh, reduce those triggers by just having welcoming environments, uh, creating learning spaces which are collaborative, which are non-bullying. We deal with bullying directly, uh, forcefully, you know, things like that. I want to come back around to bullying, but one other element that I think is key to success for children with mental health issues is their peer group being aware that this is a mental health issue and not necessarily a bad kid. Yeah. I have a friend who has a child who has some issues that she deals with, and once the teacher told the other children what she was dealing with, they became empathetic. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, they just looked at her as an oddball. And what are you doing? Is that part of what needs to happen as well? Yes, absolutely. Yes, that is actually, that's the part of the solution, is that uh, there's really good communication about, um, there's communication about communication, about how we, about norms, like behavioral norms, uh, communication norms in classrooms. Mm -hmm about being honest with each other. Right. It used to be that children felt like you had to come to school and you had to look a certain way. You sure. had to be a certain way to fit in. And there's still a lot of that. I'm really happy with this next generation of children coming up through. 
they're not as judgmental as we were growing up. They really are not. <laughs> Good to hear. They're very accepting of differences. They don't care. Like, they really don't care about skin color. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever. Um, and it's really exciting to see. Now, of course, children will learn a lot of those from uh, judging other people from, you know, adults and things sure. like that. But they're less judgy. And it's really exciting to see. Yeah, that is good to hear. Mm-hmm. On the topic of bullying, uh, how do you address it? Well, that's establishing communication norms for schools and saying these are what this is what's acceptable and this is what is not acceptable. Teachers can set norms for their classroom at the beginning of the year, and they most do. They'll mm-hmm. say, uh, in our class, what can we agree we are allowed to do with each other? These are things we're not allowed to do. And uh, typically, bullying will happen in unstructured environments where, like hallways, right. and bathrooms, and things like that. And it can like be that. subtle. Yeah. So a really good reporting system where people can report for others what they see, mm-hmm. see it and say it. So uh, we have a safe to say program where kids can call in um, anonymously. Uh, but we also have, uh, we're non-anonymous. They can let a person know if they see some bullying going on. Mm-hmm. And we address it. And there's many different ways to address bullying. Yeah. Um, there's, there's many, many ways. Sometimes it's uh, uh, counseling. Sometimes it's just a quick discussion. Sometimes it's getting people together. It really depends on the situation. Yeah. Uh, no uh, zero tolerance policies don't work. We have to address each. Life's uh, too complicated for zero tolerance policies. I just people are too complicated. Yeah. For exactly. That. Yeah. Exactly. School safety. Mm-hmm. Looking at anything new, changing yes. anything? Oh, absolutely. So uh, we just hired, actually last night, Captain um, Carter, who was with the Pennsylvania State Police. Um, we are hiring him as our director of uh, school safety and security. Okay. And he's going to work with the principals on safety plans, on uh, monitoring students, on disaster uh, response on uh, preventing disasters and uh, bad incidents from happening. So we're going to be developing a school-wide plan and also including county services, local police, school police in planning for um, and preventing for events and things like that. Do you have any kind of like red flag program where mm-hmm. if you can tell the situation's developing? Yes. Well, we do... We do have something called safe to say, which is very beneficial. Mm-hmm. And that's already revealed where kids will say, well, I've heard this. I heard some kids talking about this bad thing they wanted to do. And we've had pol- state police going to those children's homes, uh, going to knock on their doors where it's been reported that children have said these like bad things that he wanted to do yeah. and really, truly nipped it in the bud. And then we worked uh, the borough police under Chief uh, Camacho, Mm -hmm. they have a lot of informational intelligence about what's happening on uh, in the community, social media, and things like that. And they're a huge partner in um, in working with them and in making sure that we know what's going on in that sphere. Do you monitor social media of students? Uh, I personally don't, but we have people that are doing that. Um, Sounds like a tough job. Yeah, it's important to be really vigilant. The social media has created a place where uh, kids will badmouth each other and talk about their parents or mothers on uh, social media, and then they come into school after the end of the weekend fixing the fight to resolve the issue when a lot of this is just made-up sort of nonsense 
oftentimes that just it's just online bullying makes its way back into the school. So we really do have to we do have to keep an eye on it. Okay. Well, I think about that's all the time we have for today. But uh, thank you for coming on the show today, mm-hmm. and we look forward to seeing all the great changes you're going to make to the school district. Thank you for having me. No and problem. I'll just jump in to say, find us online at progresspod.org. Send us an email with your questions or comments to progresspod at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at the Progress Pod. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.